This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget, you can get in touch at any time. You can just email matt at times.radio, matt at times.radio. Let me know what you think about the podcast, anyone you'd like us to get on the podcast. If you don't like it, then, um, well, keep that to yourself. I, I do post reviews as well on the Mumbo Jumbo charts on the Apple Podcasts, because it helps, uh, because, uh, you know, there's other Emily make this lot. But anyway... Uh, post a review. Lovely. Right, coming up on today's episode, who cares about Jeremy Corbyn? Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and now Rishi Sunak keep banging on about him and how Keir Starmer sat in his shadow cabinet. But we've got exclusive polling which shows the public have no idea what they're talking about. So we'll dig into that in just a moment. But first, they were both in the studio. It was a very special edition of... Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yes, and they're both here. They're in the studio. For what we think, the third time ever. It's the third time I've ever been in, but I think one of the times I came in, Danny wasn't here, so... Oh, yes, I think twice. you were. It's twice. Yeah. Wow. Uh, anyway, morning, David. Good morning. I, t- I, can't, I can't concentrate on you without seeing all of your gubbins in the background. They're called books. <laughs> 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 gubbins. Morning, Danny. Good morning. Uh, nice to see you both here. Uh, I'm teach you to say something nice today. I know, exactly. It? I know. Thank you so much for coming. It's really lovely to see you. <laughs> Uh, right, let's talk about uh, Rishi Sunak and his G- private GP. Does it matter uh, if the Prime Minister has a private GP and doesn't use a, an NHS one, Danny? So there are two questions here. Does it matter to me and does it matter politically? So to me, it doesn't matter. There are lots of things that um, members of Parliament 
you know, by necessity, don't experience that other voters will will experience. They may not have university aged children, um, and yet they're they're you know running the university system. They may not have been convicted of crime, yet they're running the criminal system. <laughs> so I don't think that the fact that they that they experience something that um, differently to other people really makes sense as a criticism. For me, it doesn't matter politically. I think it probably will matter, particularly for uh, conservative. Uh, I think. You know, it, it'll matter at the margin when you look at what's happening to the economy at the moment and, um, you know, you look at the problems the Conservative Party's got more broadly. I suspect it will not be the biggest uh, difficulty that Rishi Sunak faces. But, um, yeah, I think it will matter politically a bit. Um, you've got to say that people do will have two different reactions. So some people will be bothered with it. Some people will make that as an accusation. Um, quite a lot of people will have the same reaction that I do, which is they don't really mind if he uh, does those things. And I've, I've often wondered how much this kind of, you know, you're rich, um, you don't, you're therefore out of touch attack really works. Um, it has two elements to it. It works in the sense that people are concerned about uh, him being in touch and they don't like the fact that he's out of touch but it also makes the people who say it look as though they kind of don't like success for example that's not good look for them either so um you know however much you can you can argue about if you get into details so i I, i'm not sure it's an un it's a total hit on him but i suspect politically it won't be an advantage david it's partly he'd probably get away with paying 250 pounds for a same day appointment if everyone else could get a gp appointment with the nhs that actually the nhs was running pretty well no, the people would mind less. Well, I, I had a discussion about this a, a couple of weeks ago. Would does Rishi Sunak have private health insurance? And the person I was talking to said, "Well, no, probably not, because he doesn't need to insure because he's so rich he can just buy it when he needs it." I'm not joking. You just actually just do yeah. it on the spot. Um, if you want to buy most of the health care that you need quickly in this country, you can do it if you've got the money to do it. Um, the problem comes exactly in the way that you're suggesting. Not that people would expect anything else of somebody as wealthy as him, because they all would think, if I was as wealthy as him, I would probably do the same thing. You know, it's one of the things that kind of goes with it. There will be a few people who don't feel like that, but most will. But we are facing such a terrible crisis in the NHS at the moment. I mean, just all the stories you hear from all your friends and so on, trying to do various things within the NHS and so on. Of course, you hear the bad stories, the good stories you tend not to hear, but nevertheless, there are so many of them. Um, I have a friend whose son has a benign brain tumour, uh, trying to get appointments, you get to the appointments, the notes have been lost, the thing has to be cancelled, you then finally get down to a telephone consultation which is paid for sometime in February, and meanwhile... If you've got the money, you could buy that consultation, you could have it next week, and everybody knows it. So it is that kind of difficulty. But I don't think what Sunak himself does particularly plays into it. I mean, people will grumble about it. That's the, the, big, the big political yeah. problem is that the NHS is in a mess. Yes, but some of, yeah. and some of that is is definitely financial, uh, which is... But on the other hand, we're spending a lot of money on the National Health Service already, uh, and we're putting up taxes on everything uh, a lot. So the question is, how much more money can we, can we spend? And, and some of it isn't financial. You know, people don't lose the notes... Uh, because they haven't got enough money. That's an organisational failure. And, um, you know, I, 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 I think before we sort of say, you know, everybody ought to be able to have a doctor, you know, I've just gone through a, uh, exactly this experience of not being able to have a GP appointment soon when I wanted one soon. You know, it's going to take me more like two and a half weeks to have one. And, uh, I, you know, it's, I, I'm 
sort of upset about it. But on the other hand, I recognise, as a society, we've, we're putting in an awful lot of money. How much more money are we going to put in? Yeah. Well, um, and, and because so many more things are available for for treat for conditions of which you know the one that I'm consulting my GP about my grandfather died of right people don't die of it so um, uh, uh, they they live longer and they need more treatment we need therefore more money and at a certain point we have to decide how much money we really can put into a system like that. Well, well, I mean, you, you've generalised the point a bit, uh, Danny. I mean, uh, the French, for example, spend 20% more on the uh, on health than we do, on the health service than, than we do. And then there are the kind of specific choke points. We know about the specific problems of social care, meaning that you have bed blocking and that leads to the ambulance blocking uh, and so on. And then you have the longer-term problem of absolutely disastrous decisions taken in staff planning going forward and so on, which is actually the biggest choke point we have at, at, at all at the moment, which is which is staffing. And all these things combine to make it a, a, a series of... Pro, a, a huge problem right at the moment. Um, but going back to the kind of the other point of, if it's going well you don't begrudge the Prime Minister his £250 uh, an appointment GP. If it's going really badly, it becomes part of a very obvious sort of grumble and counterpoint, which 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 won't work for him. The French are putting... There are countries that are putting in more and countries that are putting less, but are we contemplating putting 20% more... Of our resources into the national well, we, health we, service at the moment, twenty not twenty percent of our resources, twenty percent more resources into the NHS. Well, maybe well, if we want the kind of health service that we claim to want, it may be that we have to try and do that, okay. um, and we have to make that prime. I mean, there are other things that we can do. There, are, well, as we know, there are huge possibilities of technological advances and innovations which could solve. I mean, a lot of our problem, some of our problems are diagnostic problems. We have very blunt diagnosis for a whole lot of diseases and so on we could improve that substantially over the course of the next five to ten years and it may be that you need a bit of a reorganization in order to allow the nhs which is a very big organization to innovate but that will still in the short term cost you significant amounts of money to get done I mean, I was going to say move on, but actually the, the, it sort of flows from this because we were talking about staffing is clearly a massive problem Keir Starmer has recently talked about how he wants to rely less on foreign doctors and nurses to come in and staff the NHS because he wants to, and he's been talking this morning about weaning ourselves off immigration dependency. But all that takes time uh, to train up our own doctors and nurses, and all that takes money, and we don't have either of those. We don't have either time <laughs> well, or we, money. Well, we also have an ageing population, yeah. so we should be, be relatively clear yeah. about this. Unless we are actually going to do much better at retaining older people and retraining older people within the system, then in that case, we're always going to be immigration dependent or for the foreseeable right. future, because we're just not making enough people but, to replace the ones who are leaving. I think there is a case, you know, having asked the question today, but I'll try and answer it myself, I think there is a case for for more, putting more money in the NHS. But I think I'd only be comfortable if I felt that it would lead to greater productivity and that the money would then would then be well spent. It wouldn't... I mean, there are parts of the NHS where where wages are underfunded and you'd want to put... You can put more money into that, but you wouldn't want to merely put that into uh, higher salaries. And you'd also want to... And you don't want to obviously fund paper shuffling going around faster. Yeah. Um, I think I think um, you know I regard the National Health Service and the provision of it as a, both sort of economically essential and 
and a great thing for a country, the country to have. And we're also very politically committed to it as a country. I'm not against doing it, uh, but I, you know, but we are spending an awful lot of money on it already. Is the point, and it, that would there are big consequences to raising even higher the amount of money we're spending on it. So if we're going to do that, we really need to make sure that it's well, it's uh, it's spent on something that you actually get in return. Uh, Craig's just been in touch, uh, saying Sunak can't win. He's going to grieve for his family having private health care. Imagine they were using the NHS. He'll be wise his rich non-dom wife clogging up the NHS, <laughs> which is a good point. It's a good point. Now, uh, Bill uh, has got in touch with a question for you both, which I thought was interesting. Will there be a new Brexit party uh, formed by disappointed Tory MPs and others? <laughs> Could such a party do well without Nigel Farage? Well, I, I, I love this question. At the moment, the leader of the Reform Party uh, and GB News, which has effectively become the kind of Reform Party's own official organ, uh, are doing great stuff on how Sunak is not a real Tory and the Reform Party is going to get all the votes from the real Tories, etc. It's going to be hard on immigration, etc., but also very kind of trade liberalising and low tax. Um, in other words, one of these kind of impossible combinations, which uh, Farage represents in his kind of broader sense uh, which is why, incidentally, in his broader sense, he never really attracted many votes. Um, and they've got this kind of big thing, which is we're going to have this new party, the Reform Party's going to be it, and it's going to take over from the Conservative and lead a kind of insurgency. Or if it doesn't do that, it's at least going to take 10% off the Tories, and that means the Tories will have to be like us anyway in order to get the, that kind of 10% back. And it's going on and on about how big surge in membership. So I put out yesterday, I tweeted to him, I said... What's it surging to and what's it surging Richard from? Richard Tice for the people Richard who are Tice, the well, how many members do you have? Guess what the answer's been? Uh, none. None answer. No, no answer, answer at all. Yeah, yeah. No answer from anybody at the Reform Party will tell you how many members they've got because it's but, all, and I use my words very carefully, it's all BS. Uh, I don't, but also, I don't, is what I enjoyed was this was a response to a claim they'd had their second highest day <laughs> in November. Yes, <laughs> can, on what was it, the, the 21st of November? Can, can a party, you know, of the to the right of the Conservative Party, take a chunk of the vote? Um, absolutely, it can. They've shown that before. They can do it again. Um, they they might be able to win a handful of seats. They can certainly deny the the rest of the Conservative uh, Party a um, the chance to form a government or indeed uh, undermine it significantly so that it loses vast numbers of seats. The gainer of which will be Labour in the electoral system that we have. Canada, they did this absolutely. Preston Manning's created a reform party. They undermined the Conservative uh, vote. The, conserv the progressive Conservatives collapsed. Uh, it took them 15 years, and eventually they all got back together again, form forming, I think, the Conservative Progressives or something like that. And, uh, you know, they, they, and they, 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 they were only able to get back into power through that. Uh, system, because ultimately political parties. We've had this discussion before because David's questioned me on, you know, why do I want to be part of the Conservative Party? And the answer is, in a two-party system, you need to have a broad coalition, uh, and all the parts in it have to take a degree of responsibility for each other, and they all have to make compromises with each other. If people like Richard Tice, you know, if Richard Tice wants to spend his entire time out of Parliament, running a small party and coming second in seats, which appears to be how he'd like to spend his political career. Uh, he can do that until his political career is finished and someone else takes over doing that. He's robbed himself and probably other people of the chance to be in Parliament and actually make his uh, view count. And that possibly is the point because lots of the time their ideas are oppositional and don't work in power anyway. So looking at the, the most recent YouGov poll, uh, the Reform Party polling 6%. Massive. But it's taking, of the 2019 Tory vote, 13% of that Tory vote is going to reform. Yeah. 
uh, 15% is going to the Labour Party. So it's not insignificant. Oh, and it could score more. I yeah. mean, it might score more. It's, I, don't, I don't doubt that there are... You know, there's, there's a real demographic represented by these people and a real point of view. It's just not big enough. But, what, but why do we only get this discussion off to the right? You never get this discussion. You never say, oh, Corbyn could go off. He could set up a kind of left-wing party that'll take 4 or 5%, you know, with the Green Party. So... We all advise Labour to cosy no, up to we them. A... We don't. We don't say that. It only ever we, happens on with this kind of conception of how you have essentially to placate people off to the far right of British politics. That's been the pattern got in the course of the last 20 years. And I think it's pernicious. Uh, I think it's pernicious for the Tory party. I think the Tory party loses more off to the other end than it gains well, from, 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 from placating these people. That's, that's certainly my... No, having said that, do I have the evidence to back it up? Not immediately. That's certainly <laughs> that, that is my theory, although, by the way, there's more support for a party of the reform kind than there is, I think, for the, a party of the Corbyn type and represents a bigger demographic. That's sure. the reason why it's a bigger conversation. Uh, but, of course, there is a political party that splits the vote of the Labour Party and has 6%, and they're called the Liberal Democrats. Mm. Uh, and uh, I have long argued that that party's... Um, after the coalition completely pointless um, and that it's um, that it because it can only see itself in coalition with the Labour Party I can't understand why what it thinks it's doing or why why what it's attempting to achieve as it doesn't seem to me to have you know anything that I can put my finger on that's all that significantly different from Labour. I've never understood this view of yours uh, in one way the way where you hold it because remind me of how you started off in politics. No, no, that's why <laughs> I think it. But, no, no, that's that's, that's precisely why. Was but it, you, but uh, you, you, were in, you were in I the was SDP. On the, no, I was in the national executive of the SDP and I ran for Parliament. Uh, <laughs> so I'm uh, in that. So I'm. I, after that party collapsed, you know, ending up in competition with the monster raving loony party for support in, in the Bootle by-election, um, it, was, it was forced upon me in my late 20s and early 30s to realise in a two-party political system you need a broad coalition. It's from that that but, I take that but, view. No, but you hadn't wanted to be that. And, and, and at the stage when you were in the SDP, millions of other people hadn't wanted to be that. And so, I mean, it, it, it is something for somebody who supports our current um, voting system I think it's a little bit cheeky, to be honest, to tell people they're wasting their time. Well, they are. I'm not telling when them. That. That. No, 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 I'm just when, observing when it. When they don't <laughs> ignore me. I'm when not they telling don't, them they're not allowed to. No, 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 no. But, no, you're telling them they're wasting their time when they when they don't want to be the thing that you say that they would need All right. to be. Well, if it would help, they're not wasting their time. That's that doesn't. What I what I say is doesn't alter whether they're wasting their time or not. It's just my observation on it. And oh, no, it doesn't alter also, the fact. I thought of it. it was also an element of judgment. <laughs> well, it's my opinion. Well, that, that it's my observation <laughs> that they're doing that. Um, I don't. I don't. Nah. I don't. No, an element of judgment in the sense of it's not the right for let's. Let's let, whether or not they're well, wasting time. What they want we, to we, achieve. Do, we are running out of time, so we'll, we'll, we'll continue the conversation. We'll talk about all of David's favourite things. Should Megan wear an armband? I think probably basically all you want to talk about. <laughs> isn't it? Let's talk about whether or not we need to hear more from government ministers. Uh, the Daily Mirror is reported that ministers will be, uh, not be doing the Daily Morning round. They will only be off to broadcasters three mornings a week, which means we're going to miss out on illuminating, riveting interventions like this from Therese Coffey speaking to Times Radio the other day about the prospect of a progress on a deal at Stormont. It is regrettable uh, that we're in this situation. The, I know the government and um, my friend, uh, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, uh, Chris Heaton-Harris in particular, has been trying to bring the parties together. It has had full attention uh, from the previous Prime Minister in trying to make this happen. 
She sounds bored at the sound of her own voice. Does it matter, David? Do we it's, need to hear it, from it's ministers? It's a really interesting question you raised. I'm just um, uh, writing a review of Sebastian Payne's account of oh, yeah. the fall of Boris Johnson. And one of the things that strikes you is the very mixed blessing that ministers going on programmes can represent at times of crisis. Because, uh, firstly, if a crisis is moving very quickly, they effectively belie themselves within hours so they look like prize idiots uh, and so on. And then they get cross about being made to look like prize idiots. Which makes them the whole thing even worse. <laughs> which makes which makes the whole thing even worse. So on the one hand, you have this kind of the fact that as somebody takes lines to be given from number 10. They don't really have an ability to kind of evaluate before they go on all these programmes. Repeats them. Sounds like a bit of an idiot because actually they don't know what they're talking about. And and so they just, it's just a kind of straight badge. You just don't want the ball to get onto mm. the wicket at all, etc. But on the other hand, there's the other thing in politics, which I'm very much in favour, which is uh, the old uh, adage from Bill Clinton, never stop explaining and never stop arguing. In other words, continuously be there to put your case because if you stop doing that etc then you stop engaging and it, and a different kind of things ha- thing happens so i think what i would say is if only they could have the confidence to yes go on but also state areas of uncertainty or problem and we were prepared to accept uncertainty that would be the sweet spot but until you get there it can be a very mixed blessing is it also partly the media's fault danny on this morning round we get the either the working pension sector and they just get shouted out about the trains and the transport secretary comes on and gets shouted out about gp appointments <laughs> the, uh, and it just becomes an exercise in in people having to account yeah. for things which are not their responsibility no i think i think i don't think it is i think you've got to ask the you know, the government ministers, the questions for which they're collectively responsible, and that's fine. Uh, I, I personally would swap uh, a few longer, more detailed, more rigorous interviews for these constant um, kind of snacking, as it were, personally, uh, in terms of information, and it would also allow us to take a more strategic view about what the government's doing. But I suspect we won't get that swap. So, uh, you know, I think I'd be resistant to losing any access to government ministers because you probably won't get it in the, in the form of another. But if we could come to some accord uh, with government, yes, we don't do these things, people don't find them satisfying, you don't find them useful, but let's have, you know, a few longer, more strategic yeah. interviews uh, and you won't avoid those things, then I think you learn more out of that. Um, and in fact, we, we've had an occasional series on the show called Asking Cabinet Ministers About Their Brief. And actually, it's been quite, you know, whether it's on transport or schools. <laughs> thing, it's radical. Radical, radical. Uh, right, before we go, because I know you're desperate to talk about it, uh, David. Uh, should Meghan wear an armband? No, the, 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 I wanted to just put this question out, and we don't really have long enough to do it. I notice um, she's just won this uh, award, which, as far as I can tell, is just given by one of the members of the Kennedy family, kind of, you know, sort of great persons of the century for combating the race in the royal family. Got a lot of people very cross, not least on our own pages and so on. And the, the, the point I want to put is this Meghan Markle is of no actual importance whatsoever. She isn't. Uh, just like Prince Harry is pretty much of no actual importance whatsoever. He just isn't. He's never going to get to the throne. He's nowhere kind of close. Yet there is a psychological need we appear to have for this kind of drama and for this kind of person to work us up into incredible lavas despite the fact it doesn't matter. And what I'm asking is, what function is that? What's it actually doing for you, Danny? No or yes. That's my answer to that question. (laughs) Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich there just fading away into the distance. Uh, you can read them both in the Times every week. Danny on a Wednesday, David on a Thursday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash box. Up next, who cares about Corby? Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So the big question we're asking today is, why do the toys keep banging on about Jeremy Corbyn? Certified ministers, I mean, get through those uh, a fair way, if not these days. Keep banging on about them. Does it do them any good? Of course, Jeremy Corbyn had a huge personal following, led the party to two general elections. The first against Theresa May when he did surprisingly well, and the second against Boris Johnson when he led his party to its worst post-war defeat. As it gets a bit complicated, this. He is still a member of the Labour Party, but he's had the whip suspended by Keir Starmer, which means he's currently an independent MP who is a member of the Labour Party. Well, I'm joined now by uh, Times Red Box editor Patrick McGuire, who literally wrote the book on this, on the book uh, called Left Out. Left Out, the inside story, Labour under Corbyn. Exactly right. So remind us, Patrick, why Jeremy Corbyn is currently an independent MP who's a member of the Labour Party. Well, you have to travel back in time two long years for that back uh, in uh, the winter of 2020 when the Equality and Human Rights Commission released its report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. It concluded uh, that the Labour Party had uh, been institutionally anti-Semitic and um, that it had needed to reform several of its internal processes. Now, Jeremy Corbyn gave a statement on the day that report was released in which he said... um, among other things, among acknowledging the problem, said uh, that anti-Semitism in the Labour Party had been exaggerated for factional purposes by his internal opponents. Uh, he was suspended by Keir Starmer and a condition of his readmission has always been that he has to retract that statement and apologise, uh, which he has yet to do. Uh, and you know, we'll be hearing from uh, James Schneider shortly on, on, on that question. And ever since then... He has remained suspended from the Labour whip. He's not sitting as a Labour MP. And during that time, Keir Starmer has transitioned from a politician that was willing to split the difference between the right of the Labour Party and Corbynism, someone who was saying well, we need to re- retain Jeremy Corbyn's radicalism on the economy, to a born-again Blairite who is defining himself against, in a very aggressive way, everything Jeremy Corbyn stood for and Jeremy Corbyn personally. We're now at the stage where uh, people close to Keir Starmer now speak as if it's a given that Jeremy Corbyn will not be running as a Labour MP at the next election. And the only question is when and how that is confirmed. Uh, So, you know, much has changed in the period. Jeremy Corbyn has not been a Labour MP and every sign suggests he's not coming back. And yet uh, the Conservatives won't start banging on about him. Uh, uh, PMQ's most weeks... 
Conservative Prime Ministers have tried to pin on Keir Starmer his association with Jeremy Corbyn. And he campaigned, he campaigned to put Vladimir Corbyn, I mean, sorry, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street, Mr Speaker. Boris, you crushed Jeremy Corbyn. This is the person who in 2019 told the BBC, and I quote, I do think Jeremy Corbyn would make a great Prime Minister. So, uh, is any of this making any difference? Conservatives is trying to align Keir Starmer with the deeply unpopular Jeremy Corbyn. We've got some exclusive polling from YouGov, which suggests nobody has a clue what they're talking about. Tanya Abraham is from YouGov and can talk us through it. Hi, Tanya. Hi, thanks for having me. So, uh, talk us through this polling. What does it show when you asked people what they knew about Keir Starmer's relationship, alliance with, support for Jeremy Corbyn? Um, Well, the overall stat that kind of pops out is that the majority, so 57% of Britons, aren't really sure about the Starmer-Corbyn relationship. Um, Of those that actually have an opinion, um, overall 19% think that Keir Starmer was a a Corbyn supporter, and overall 24% don't think he was a Corbyn supporter. And of course, there are nuances between those different groups. Um, 12% um, think that Starmer was a Corbyn supporter, but he was wrong to to do that. Um, and, you know, uh, a similar proportion thinks that he was a Corbyn supporter, but he, he was he was not right to do that. So there are uh, differences within these these groups. And of course, there are differences along party lines as well. Um, for example, a quarter of Conservative uh, backers say that Keir Starmer was a Corbyn supporter, but was wrong for doing so. Um, conversely, a quarter of Labour voters say he wasn't a Corbyn supporter, but should have supported him. Given that the Conservative Party and Downing Street will be doing their own polling on exactly these sorts of issues, it seems an odd thing because it's every week Rishi Sunak and before that, well, Liz Truss didn't do many PMQs, but every week from Boris Johnson, we got, you know, Keir Starmer, you sat in the shadow cabinet with Jeremy Corbyn, you want to make Jeremy Corbyn Prime Minister. To, to bang away at a strategy which is leaving more than half of people totally baffled is a bit weird, isn't it? It does strike as being a bit weird because, you know, given given the public overall um, aren't really sure what the relationship was, um, it does strike as, you know, in, inflating the, the differences between that Westminster bubble and the general public and, you know, what they think and what they remember as well. And I think memory and, and recall plays quite a, an important role when it comes to many political matters. Um, and, and this shows, you know, it might be one of those examples. We should probably uh, hear from uh, Jeremy Corbyn himself uh, when he's addressed the fact that uh, uh, so many uh, prime ministers, including Rishi Sunak, keep banging on about him. Yesterday, in answer to the leader of the opposition, he made reference to me. He gave a wholly inaccurate representation of the 2019 election manifesto, which he must have been fully well aware of because he took part in many debates concerning the content of that manifesto during the election campaign. Could you guide me, Mr Speaker, on how um, the Prime Minister could correct the record and if I'm going to live rent-free in his head, at least he could accurately reflect what I, what I think and what I say. We just seem to be living rent-free in uh, uh, Richard We should point out, uh, Tanya, the, the, the rest of the polling you did for us, uh, only 14% of people said Jeremy Corbyn would have been a good Prime Minister and Keir Starmer was right to work for him. So it's not that the Tories aren't wrong to, to think that, Keir, that Jeremy Corbyn's not very popular. They're just really struggling to pin this on Keir Starmer, despite the fact that he was shadow Brexit and sat in his shadow cabinet. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, when it comes to the public's view of whether Jeremy Corbyn would have been a good or bad prime minister, like you said, fourteen um, percent think he would have been a, a good prime minister, and Starmer was would have been right to work uh, for him. But um, around fifty percent overall think that Jeremy Corbyn would have been a bad prime minister. Um, and even looking at um, the kind of regular trackers that we run at YouGov. Um, with various political figures, um, there are there is strong opinion of Jeremy Corbyn when it comes to you know the the overall bad approval rating. Um, he was widely seen as having kind of more negative attributes than than the current um, Labour leader Keir Starmer. Um, and yeah, we we can see that the public have very kind of strong views of Jeremy Corbyn. But when it comes to thinking back of the relationship and what was happening politically at the time, um, there is some kind of um, disparity between it. Tanya, it's really good to speak to you. Thanks so much for that. That's Tanya Abraham from uh, YouGov. We should point out the same poll, uh, that Labour on 47% and the Conservatives on 26%. So whatever it is uh, that the Conservatives are banging on about, it's not necessarily uh, working. I caught up with James Schneider. He was an advisor to uh, and spokesman for Jeremy Corbyn. And I asked him whether he thought Keir Starmer should bring his predecessor back into the party. Yeah, he absolutely should for two reasons. I mean, firstly, Jeremy Corbyn has been a Labour MP for a very long time. He was leader of the party. The right thing to do for party unity would be to have him back in and get the party working together for progressive policies. It's also in Keir Starmer's narrower interest because it kind of knocks on the head this Tory attack line which Sunak is going to keep on pushing, that Starmer is somehow not acceptable because he supported Corbyn for Prime Minister. If he effectively shrugs his shoulders and lets Corbyn back in, it takes a sting out of that attack. If he keeps pushing Corbyn away, it actually gives that attack some credibility because Sunak can say, you tried to make this man Prime Minister and now you won't even let him be a Labour MP. It makes it seem like Starmer is sort of skittish and, and worried about that attack if he keeps Corbyn on the outside. You know, kicking him out of the Parliamentary Labour Party was always really more about politics and Starmer trying to position himself as not being Jeremy Corbyn than it was about anything Jeremy Corbyn did. And you can see this in the briefings that come out from Starmer's side saying, you know, even if Jeremy did the most, uh, you know, grovelling uh, apology in the world, we wouldn't let him back in and that sort of thing. So so that's really what it's it's about. I'm sure, you know, uh, Jeremy would be, you know, magnanimous and focused on the main thing that most Labour Party members and supporters want Labour politicians to be focused on, which is setting out an alternative for how we're going to be a much better government than the one that we have now, how we're going to deal with the cost of living crisis, climate breakdown, uh, low pay inequality and and so on and I think Jeremy would play you know a, a, a positive role in that. That was James Schneider, a former advisor and spokesman for Jeremy Corbyn, arguing that Keir Starmer should let him back into the party to take the sting out of the Conservative attacks. Well, listen to that was the Labour MP Ben Bradshaw. Uh, morning, Ben. Hello, Matt. Uh, I wonder, <laughs> wonder what you make of that, that. That follow the logic of that argument. Should Jeremy Corbyn well, be let back into the Labour Party? I don't think uh, Keir Starmer or, or the current Labour leadership will be taking any le lessons in strategy from Mr Schneider, who uh, helped uh, propel the Labour Party to its worst election result since the 1930s. And in that clip, I mean, Mr Schneider completely ignored uh, the reason that the whip was removed two years ago from Jeremy Corbyn because of his, his appalling uh, response to the uh, 
uh, Human Rights Commission report into anti-Semitism that found that the party under his leadership had broken the law on several counts. Uh, and, and, and the fact that he still hasn't apologised for that and, and set the record straight, and he doesn't show any sign of doing so. I think there are probably other reasons why he'll never be a Labour MP again, such as his support for uh, the anti-NATO Stop the War movement uh, or, or over the Ukraine issue. Uh, but look, you know, I, I think uh, the fact that Rishi Sunak keeps going on about this every week of Prime Minister's questions shows how desperate the Tories are. And as you pointed out, and your pollsters pointed out, it's had no impact on our very healthy uh, poll lead. And in fact, it gives it gives Keir and the Labour Party every week an opportunity to remind people just how much the party has changed under Keir's leadership. Uh, on the specifics, though, of uh, of Keir Starmer against Rishi Sunak, although the, the voting attention polls, are, there's a big old gap. Uh, Keir Starmer is only uh, when, on, on the question of best Prime Minister. Keir Starmer on 31%, Rishi Sunak on 27%. In our focus groups, it comes up a lot. People do still slightly have doubts about Keir Starmer. Is it a problem that he sat in uh, Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet? For instance, you didn't. He then ran on quite a left-wing uh, uh, policy platform to become leader and has then shredded it and is moving further to the right. Is that a problem at all, Ben? No, I don't think so uh, at all. I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of people who served in Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, cabinet would have thought very carefully about that. But the simple truth was uh, that if people like Keir hadn't served, there wouldn't have been a shadow cabinet because uh, there weren't enough uh, true believers in the PLP to fill a Corbyn uh, shadow cabinet. And I think Keir, I can't speak for him, you need to ask him about this, but I can imagine that he felt it was more important there were competent people uh, in that shadow cabinet who could help prevent Jeremy Corbyn doing things that are even madder than the things he wanted to do, such as on Brexit, where I think Keir felt, you know, his role and duty was to try to steer Britain towards a less damaging Brexit than the one we ended up with. And I think it's been proved right uh, on that. So, no, I don't think that's a problem at all. Uh, I, you know, some other colleagues made a different choice. Uh, and I think the, the the changes in policy since, I mean, I always thought that that, that um, list of pledges that he made uh, during the uh, leadership campaign, uh, I, as I understand it, um, it, it, written by somebody who'd been in the kind of Corbyn camp, uh, was a mistake and a hostage to fortune. But I think events have changed so much since then that a lot of the stuff that was in that is just simply unrealistic and undeliverable. But look, Labour still has a very radical plan. It's a very different plan from the Conservatives. It's a, it's a progressive plan, but it's a plan that we can only implement if we get back into government. And I think the thing that's impressed me about Keir uh, and actually pleasantly surprised me is how how ruthless he's been in uh, getting the party back into a position of electability, is expelling all the anti-Semites and the trots and communists and other people who uh, came into the party uh, either before or with Jeremy Corbyn and have never been Labour supporters, rather like James Snyder. I think he was the Liberal and the Green, wasn't he, before? And has made the <laughs> Labour Party electable, has made, making the Labour Party electable again. Yeah. And, you know, we, we can't change this country for the better and, 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 and repair the damage that 12 years of Tory government's done without winning an election. And I think that's where Keir is absolutely spot on. Let me bring in um, Patrick McGuire. Uh, ben, you talk about Keir's ruthlessness and the need to purge the party. I'm, I'm, you wouldn't use the word purge, I'm sure, but uh, get rid of sort of continuity Corbynite elements. Um, that applies to several MPs uh, still in the Parliamentary Labour Party and we know that should Labour win 
uh, a narrow majority at the next election, um, these people who espouse Corbynite politics may uh, may have the whip hand over a Labour government and its direction in terms of uh, what it can and can't, can't pass through Parliament. So do you think uh, Keir should stop with Jeremy Corbyn or do you think uh, you know MPs in the campaign group and other uh, aspiring Labour candidates uh, should uh, get the same sort of treatment and be given the boot? Well, it depends what they do, uh, uh, Patrick. I mean, you know, if they if they do something that is against party rules or brings the party into disrepute, that'll be a matter for the whips and and for Keir. As far as I'm aware, none of them has. Although, if you remember, Keir did make it quite clear when a small number, actually not even a majority of, of the, what you might describe as the left wing MPs in the Labour Party, the very small group anyway, uh, decided to go off and support a terrible statement on Ukraine. Uh, written by Stop the War, he made quite clear that they had to retract that, and I think uh, they, they 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 all did. Uh, so so he's clearly he's clearly put down some red lines uh, as to what you need to be and do in order to be a Labour MP and a Labour candidate, and I think that's absolutely right. But I I, I mean I I'm, I'm rather more optimistic than you. I think we'll get a, a good healthy majority at the next election. And of course we've had we've had small majorities in the past, and people like Jeremy Corbyn in the PLP, and it's still been manageable. <laughs> and I'm confident that uh, when you know when we get back into government on a on a radical uh, and exciting program of policies that this country desperately needs, uh, that if if any Labour MPs feel that uh, you know they don't want to implement uh, the policies on which they were elected in a manifesto, they can always go elsewhere but you know we are all elected on a manifesto uh, and that's what we're elected on and it will be the duty of all Labour MPs to support that programme of a Labour government. Just before I let you go Ben you've announced you're standing down as MP in Exeter uh, do you regret doing that now because you could you could be back around the, around the cabinet table with Ben with uh, Gordon Brown you could be back around the cabinet you could be a, a grandee in the cabinet uh, in a Keir Starmer government. It's very kind of you, Matt. No, the fact that Labour's doing very well and is now in safe hands and looks like it might win an election makes it actually easier <laughs> easier for me to step uh, back very and uh, and to do so to do so with with a good and clean conscience, with not only the party in good hands but but my own constituency. Uh, I hope in very good hands with the successes that my local party has chosen. So no, it makes it easier rather than harder. I did that with the minister very for good. ten years. It's up to the next generation to uh, to repair the damage that the Tories have done. I'm not I'm not old, not old farts like me. <laughs> Not at all, Ben. Not at all. Always love to speak to you. Ben Bradshaw there, Labour MP, uh, reflecting on uh, what James Snyder was saying. I also, I should point out, I also asked James Snyder, uh, former spokesman Jeremy Corbyn, whether he thinks Jeremy Corbyn will end up standing as an independent in his uh, current Islington North seat if he's not allowed back into the Parliamentary Labour Party. I don't know what decision Jeremy will take when the time comes, but certainly there'll be a lot of people in Islington North urging him to do so if he's not allowed to be the Labour candidate because you know, people like having him as their MP. He's a very good MP. He's got a lot of support locally. But yes, it will cause a, a circus for Starmer, which will be unfortunate because you know, most of the country pay attention to politics at election time, but not really in between. Uh, most people don't think that Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn are the same person because most people have eyes and ears and they can see and they can hear. And him trying to show that he's not Jeremy Corbyn, the audience wasn't really the electorate. You know, they say it's for the Red Wall or, or, or whatever. It's to show parts of the establishment that were frightened about a Corbyn government because it would radically redistribute wealth and power from the few to the many that they don't have to worry so much about a Starmer-led Labour government and therefore don't need to attack him so much. That's the real audience for Starmer's uh, Corbyn bashing. It isn't for the electorate. 
because you know mo most people don't particularly you know don't particularly care. That was uh, James Schneider uh, speaking to me yesterday about whether or not Jeremy Corbyn should stand as an independent. What do you think, Patrick McGar, would happen? Because he's obviously very popular in Islington North, but all research suggests MPs massively overestimate their 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 personal following in their constituencies. Well, look, Jeremy Corbyn has been the MP for Islington North and will have been the MP for Islington North for 41 years at the next election. And unlike a lot of uh, MPs who then subsequently run as independents, see uh, the handful of Tory ministers who did so in 2019, uh, does have a, a degree of national profile, has been an MP for four decades, um, has uh, you know a big personal following in Islington North. Nobody would dispute that. Um, but you're right that uh, in in many ways, uh, people find that when they run, um, their personal votes are smaller than they like. So we'll, we'll, the proof will be, the proof will be in the pudding. I think he'll stand a better chance than a lot of independent candidates. And much will depend on uh, who the Labour Party uh, chooses to run against him. Mary Cray, the former yeah. uh, Blairite uh, minister, is one often uh, suggested. There, um, we'll see. It's too early to tell. But um, as a rule, people who run as independents don't tend to win. We're taking a look at, well, who cares about Jeremy Corbyn? The Tories keep banging on about him, but as we've just heard, polling suggests he's not landing with the public. The other thing that Keir Starmer is doing with the Labour Party, Patrick McGuire, is, is getting a real grip on who is standing and likely to become Labour MPs at the next election. Yes, exactly that. The Labour Party is pressing ahead with its selections for target seats uh, for the next election, the seats that it must win in order to form a majority. And as such, uh, Keir Starmer's office are running the rule over potential candidates. And, and what you tend to see is this. People throw their hats in the ring, and then when the long list and short list uh, are decided, or rather long list, because that's what's decided by the party centrally, um, mysteriously, any left-winger most left-wingers, rather, uh, disappear from the long list at that instance. And why does this happen? Well, you speak to people around Keir Starmer, they say, well, we're, it's merely a question of quality control. We're trying to weed out people who are embarrassed the party. Look at, uh, you know, Number 10 will be looking at their tweets and their, their past support for causes Keir Starmer has disavowed. So will we. But embarrassment is subjective. And you find that disproportionately, these people uh, are of the left. Only one of the... Uh, of the candidates for target seats selected by so far by the Labour Party is what you could call of the left of the party or even a even a Corbynite Pfizer Shaheen who's going to fight Ian Duncan Smith in, in Chingford and Woodford Green and, and she was never a you know a, 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 not what you call a died in the wall Corbyn Easter. Well let's speak to one of those who's been uh, blocked from standing. Emma Dent Code was the Labour MP uh, in Kensington uh, but lost the seat in 2019 has been blocked from standing again. Emma, do you think you've been blocked because you were too left-wing, because you supported Jeremy Corbyn? Um, that's what it seems like to me, definitely. Um, really, the, um, I was called to a due diligence interview um, at which most of the things I was accused of were, were thought crime or joint enterprise. One of them, I was standing in, uh, um, at a march for Stop the War next to somebody holding us, um, I think it was um, Socialist Workers Party or something like that, a placard. And I was associated with that because I was standing next to somebody. I know that it was some of the things I was accused of were really silly or a thought crime. You know, I was in a room with somebody who'd been expelled, somebody I'd never heard of um, in an online room with somebody um, who, who'd been expelled from the party. And that made me, a, you know, th there were all these things I, I was accused of bad judgment. There wasn't one thing which could have got me suspended, expelled, anything else. Should you should, um, should you have been at a stop, stop the Wall rally at all, given that uh, Keir Starmer made clear he just disagreed with the, 
with their position on on Ukraine, on NATO. I mean, that is at odds with party policy, isn't it? It's absolutely. But this was in 2019. Um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was our leader. Um, stop the war isn't a prescribed um, a party at all. So, you know, I don't approve of stop the war's position on Ukraine. Uh, but this, this was three years ago. Okay. When, um, you know, times were different and this kind of retrospective accusations I find very difficult because um, Stop the War is, you know, they were, we were protesting against uh, possible action in Syria and protecting people in Syria. And then, you know, all these young people coming over from Syria. So uh, um, to be accused of something retrospectively, I find is very problematic. And, you know, I've had the same politics since I was about 15. I've always been a pacifist. We're allowed to be pacifists. Um, in the late party, and I was forged at a Catholic school, which is very pacifist in in many ways. Um, I'm not Catholic anymore, but you know the idea that you have to you have to keep remolding yourself. Um, I find quite difficult. I've served under every leader and been very very loyal party member, um, even during the Iraq Iraq War, which was really hard. Um, but um, you know, suddenly I'm I'm a dodgy lefty, and I find that quite difficult. I've, I've been I've had the same politics since I was fifteen. Do you? Think... I don't mind people associating me with Corbyn's politics, but I'm not a part of a cult as, by any means because it is my socialist politics which I've always had. But I suppose it's those it's that socialist politics in 2019 which helped lose you the seat in Kensington. Uh, well, you could say that, but actually, if you look at it, what what was happening at that time was the Liberal Democrats saying that only Liberal Democrats can can win. Um, and we're going to reverse uh, Brexit, which would have been lovely, but clearly it didn't happen. They got they stole a lot of votes from me, uh, but it was only 150. And can we rem- remember that in 2017, I overturned a majority uh, by se- over 7,000 votes. And that, that was a lot, nearly half my votes so come w- from Tory held wards. Would you like to see Jeremy Corbyn back in the Labour Party? Should he be allowed to stand, do you think, in uh, Islington? I think he should. I think we need to be a broad church. I really do. Even under Tory... Uh, Tony Blair and all the difficulties. He held held number 10 for 14 years um, and it was a broad church then. We were allowed to protest. We were allowed to have different thoughts and we were a stronger party for it. I think you need the different voices. Otherwise, how how can you progress with policy unless you have different voices? I have expertise in the built environment. There are very few people in Parliament who have that and I'm very useful. And actually, maybe that's why um, nearly 8,000 of my votes came from Tory-held wards. Emma Danko, really good speech to get your perspective. Emma Danko, the former Labour MP in uh, in Kensington. Uh, just finally, uh, Patrick Guard, just briefly, more reports today where we talk about what's happened to the left. The momentum's run out of money. Yes, uh, Momentum has told its members, this, is, by the way, remember, is the group set up to support Jeremy Corbyn's uh, leadership campaign and really has organised, the organised force of leftism at the grassroots of the Labour Party have told their supporters that their future is in peril. Uh, they say a combination of rising inflation, the cost of living are hitting their subs, but also they say Keir Starmer's war on the left. So it's a bit of a vicious cycle for the left in that, um, you know, they're being, they're being frozen out almost, uh, which may, means it's harder for them to make the case to activists at the grassroots yeah. uh, that they should stay in the Labour Party. You heard from James Schneider, who I believe is still in the Labour Party, but, you know, people like Matt Saab, cousin, a big left-wing voice, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's former spokesman, joined the Green Party, as have many other Corbyn yeah. activists. So um, it's, a, it's a cold house for people like Momentum at the minute. Yeah, bad news for, for Momentum. And yet, uh, it's not doing the toys much good either, banging on about Jeremy Corbyn as our polling uh, showed. Uh, that was Patrick McGuire, Times Red Box editor. Don't forget, you can get me in your inbox every morning. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash 
Redbox. We also heard from t- uh, pollster Tanya Abraham, James Schneider, former spokesman for Jeremy Corbyn, Ben Bradshaw, current Labour MP, and Emma Dentcode, a former Labour MP who hasn't been allowed to stand again. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Redbox podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.